Hey everybody, Rick here from Fueled by the Outdoors, and I'm here to tell you about a wonderful company, Saddies, custom ammunition and gun works. Aaron Satterfield and his family have been turning out some awesome game loads lately. Uh, I've been using the Saddies Fatties uh, turkey loads, and I gotta tell you, they stop a bird dead. Chris uh, used a 20 gauge this year, I used the 12, Josh used a 20, and uh, my son actually killed one with a 410 this year with uh, one of the Saddies loads, and my god, do they put the birds down like crazy. Aaron Satterfield and his family have a wide-ranging array of ammunition, custom game loads, predator loads, turkey loads, the Saddies Fatty, and also they do gun work. Please get a hold of them with any questions that you have in terms of your custom ammunition needs. Go to saddiesllc.com. That's S-A-T-T-I-E-S-L-L-C.com and tell them that Rick from Fueled by the Outdoors sent you. Kurt Buck down, baby. Oh my gosh, that was freaking awesome. This is my first public land buck. This is my second set of the season. I can't even. Oh my gosh, I just heard him fall. I just heard him fall. Uh. I just shot my Kentucky buck. Welcome to Fueled by the Outdoors. I'm your host, Chris Leppard, and tonight I am hosting a gentleman by the name of Charles Golston. Is that correct? Golston or Golson? Golson. Golson. Okay. So, uh, dude, how you doing tonight? I'm doing great. Awesome. Well, um, we've got a lot to talk about. Uh, you just came back from Colorado. Did you go to, or did you, I don't know if I asked you what state you were in. You don't have to say if you don't want to, but you just returned from out West hunting elk. Tell us a little bit about how that went. Yeah. So we went to Colorado. This will be my fourth elk trip to Colorado. I've been on two rifles and only two bow hunts. And this was my second bow hunt uh, on over-the-counter units. And it it's crazy. Elk hunting is just a whole different adventure. No matter how hard you prepare your mind, your body, you do your homework, your gear, everything. It's just, um, for us flatlanders, it's a whole new ball game. And so... Um, I took my Intel from three years ago. I had, we had a really big snowstorm and I started getting on some really good elk sign. And so the plan this year was to drive all the way up to the end of this crazy road, um, to set up camp there, kind of have a main camp and have our spike camp equipment if we needed it and go start where I left off. And so that was kind of our game plan. And we had several other areas marked as backup plans. So, you know, I, I've been prepping all summer, been doing tons of, I'm a little out of shape, so I've been doing tons of hill climbs, been doing lots of hikes with, you know, 70 pounds in my pack, been prepping my gear all summer, have it weighed down to the ounce. I'm very meticulous with those things. Um, I went with two buddies. We had never elk hunted together before, but they also were very diligent. We met together. We made sure we were all on the same page. And so we were feeling good when we got to, kind of the base of the mountain to drive up 
it was two days before season and it didn't look like there was much sign of people there. So we'd start driving up this crazy road and we didn't get there till way after dark, but we're like, we're just going to go set up camp. There was two camps on this road. Mm. And, and so we're like, okay, two camps. That's not bad. There's a lot of areas. So it's, it's going to be okay. So we go out, um, we go out scouting and the next day and we, we, we decide we're going to, cr- we're going to climb up this crazy glassing knob that I had picked out. We get all the way to the top and realize, um, we can't even see anything. So we wasted this, this insane trip up this, the side of this mountain. Like it was probably only a thousand feet in elevation change, but we got up there. Decided That's a lot. To, oh yeah. Yeah. We were hurting bad, but it was first day just trying to get acclimated. So we climbed back down and that night we ended up, uh, glass in a meadow no wait i got that backwards so we actually glassed the meadow that morning so that morning we, we get to this meadow and, and we pick out this little glassing knob and very first thing we see this moose and i'm like you got to be kidding me I, and so i get all this awesome spotting scope um footage of this moose and then i'm sitting there messing around not paying attention and next thing you know here comes this four by three elk he he was a raghorn, but he was a legal bull, and he comes walking seventy to seventy five yards from us. We could have killed him. And, oh my god! Um, yeah, and so I I got footage of him, and we're feeling really good. And so, you know, we we go to sleep that night feeling like okay, tomorrow we're gonna just do some some close to camp scouting. And so the next morning we got is season in when you're out there. No, it's it. Um, we got there two day. It was we had two days of scouting, and then the season. Okay. And so we, we made a little bit of a mistake and I'll explain that in just a minute. But so then the day before season, we go out that morning scouting and we go to where I left off three years ago. And immediately we found 15 beds in the grass. We found, we found fresh tracks. And when you get close to a herd of elk, if you're downwind, you can actually smell them. And so we had the thermals dropping down the mountain right into us. And we could smell a herd of elk. I mean, those beds were so fresh. And so they were probably bedded, my guess is about 200 yards up. And so we're like, all right, like we got this. We, we found the elk. We've already filmed one. And so we backed out. We went back down the mountain to do some other stuff at the bottom. By the time we drove our side-by-side back up that night, there was 13 camps on that road. And the very first day out hunting, I ran into 14 other bow hunters. And so we just spent the next three days, like we thought there was a lot of fresh sign the first day, but we spent the next three days just looking so hard. And I don't think the elk were still in there. I mean, we tried going all the way up to tree line. We hunted really low. I walked as far as my legs could carry me and I just couldn't find them. That is so tough, dude. Yeah. Yeah. We, so, you know, yeah, we, it actually was crazy. We had, um, we went down the mountain, we come back up, there's a truck parked three feet from our tent and they put up a wall tent seven feet away from our tent. And so it was just, we weren't quite ready for the amount of pressure that we were going to receive. And so That's after, yeah, yeah, it was, it was intense. We, we met some awesome guys out there. We were sharing Intel. Nobody to my knowledge of the 30 guys that were hunting kind of the same area we were, nobody killed an elk and I'm not even sure if anyone saw one. So, um, the winter kill, actually, we thought we were far enough East that the, the big winter kill in the Northwest wouldn't affect us, 
but it turns out um, some local guys said, no, the elk herd in our area got hammered so hard. And so after three days, we pulled camp. We went to a new spot. The new spot had a lot of elk sign, but it was all old because there was a giant herd of sheep that they were running in there. And so all the elk got pushed out by the sheep and uh, we couldn't locate any. And so we moved to a third spot and just, I mean, we just hammered it. We walked, I mean, all three of us did our due diligence. A lot of days we went separate directions and did everything we could to find elk. And we drove past I would say 100 to 150 elk camps, never saw any elk meat or any rack. We only talked to a handful of guys out of hundreds that had even seen an elk. And so um, it it was really tough. I I was really deflated because I put a lot of time and effort and thought into this thing. Um, Also, we went the first week, which I think was a mistake because for us rookies, you really, when you're a flatlander that doesn't know what they're doing out West, you really need them to be talking to help you. And they would, they, they weren't talking at all. And so I think if I go again, one, I'm going to pick um, some different units down South and two, we're going to go later in the season when they start talking. So um, I've, I've learned a lot and I love elk hunting so much, but man, it, it, it takes everything you got and, and, and then some. And so um, my goal is as a hunter is to always learn and grow. And so that's, that's what I've been doing. I've been watching elk videos nonstop, been, been listening to guys who are way smarter than me. And I'm just trying to continue to, to learn and to grow. So next time, next time I can have a, hopefully a better experience. Yeah. I've been out to, so I've done Colorado over the counter twice, 2016 and 2018, I've yet to see or hear a bull. Um, The first day I was out there, I saw, I'm sorry, the second day, I saw um, a huge cow with three calves. And I thought, oh my God, we're okay. Here we go. Yeah. And this was when I was a, I was an idiot. (laughs) I was watching elk videos too. And I'm like, yeah, I'd pass that one. And that one, now I'm like, don't let the calf walk in front of me. Like, I've heard so much about the elk meat that I would love to just go get a cow tag and cow hunt. I mean, I just want to, like, learn and come home with meat. So I'm going to try to do, um, at the very least, a rifle hunt next year Um, just to kind of have just a little more chance of coming home with something. Um, but that, I mean, that's a, like, obviously you can reach out and touch one, right. But you got other challenges cause that's a time of year where it could be 70 today and you can have three feet of snow tomorrow. And so I don't know, you know, I don't know how that's going to work, but we're going to try it out, I think. So, but I mean, we, we actually, my first two years we rifle hunted and it is a different time of year, but, um, we saw a lot of pressure, but both rifle hunts, we saw over a hundred elk. Really? My, my buddy missed, I was trying to film this and I completely messed the film up. Um, but he missed a world class, a world class for the unit. I mean, it was probably a 340 to 350 inch bull in a really bad over the counter unit 
just a giant, giant bull. There was a herd of 60 elk that went through this meadow. Um, the giant, there was a five by five that was probably like 290, 300 range. Oh my and, gosh. Yeah. And so then the next year I bought, I didn't have a tag the first year. I was just tagging along. The next year I bought a tag and opening day, I got a bad migraine. So I went down to camp um, during midday and I went up the other side of the mountain. I was glassing my buddies. And I watched um, two legal bulls walk 10 yards from the rock I was on that morning. I saw over 100 elk, had probably uh, probably 75 of them in range. I just never had a legal bull. Um, but my buddy shot a 6 by 4 The other one shot a 4 by 4 And the other one shot a cow. So I was the only one that didn't tag out. Wow. So we've yeah, had I good think, luck rifle. Yeah. Yeah. And, and honestly, man, again, I love the accomplishment of the bow thing. But I feel like I need to. If I'm going to invest, you know, it's not like deer. You're investing six, seven, eight hundred bucks in just a tag and then, you know, gas money, getting child care and getting everybody taken care of. I mean, leaving for, you know, eight, 10, 12 days is tough on everyone. So um, if I'm going to go out, I, I think it'd be cool to like put camp on a skid and ship it to a storage unit. And then fly out, go sleep at elevation for a night, acclimate, maybe, maybe go where you're going to hunt or something and just kind of do a little bit of glassing stuff, but take it easy and just try to acclimate and then, you know, kind of ease into it a little bit. But it seems like the rifle hunt is just a different experience because they're grouped up more and kind of starting that migrating and stuff. So I think it'd be cool. Um but I really, really, really want the accomplishment of an over-the-counter bull with a bow. Yeah, no, I, right? yeah, it, <laughs> uh, that I want that so bad too. And honestly, I think too, a, a big mistake I made was I didn't play to my strengths. So I think when you're elk hunting, especially, I mean, I would, I would hope everyone does it whitetail hunting. But when you're elk hunting, you got to find your strength and play to it. I personally am a really bad caller. I just am. Um, I'm I'm trying to learn how to cut. I have a really small mouth. It's weird, but um, the calls don't fit in my mouth very well. And so I've been experimenting with um, cutting down some mouth calls and trying to get better at that. But um, I've found that my strength in the mountains is actually glassing. I can, you can set me in one spot. I'll glass for eight hours and be fine. I just love glassing. Yeah. And we didn't find very many spots you could glass very well from. And so the next time I go out, I'm going to ensure there's multiple places I can get up really high in glass and just play to my strengths. Cause, cause, um, stalking through bedding areas and calling it, it that's just not my game. Um, yeah. So people got to figure out what their game is and really play to that strength. I agree. Um, is that what you'd, you'd try to do different is glass more with this one, with this yeah, path for, grip? Yeah. For me, I would try to find a different spot. I would try. I would try to get up really high and, you know, let my buddies maybe work some of the meadows and, and go look for a sign. And I would spend most of my time up as high as I could get and, and try to find a place where you can actually um, see a long ways or, or see up above tree line or see multiple meadows. And we just, we just didn't really find um, places like that. So. Okay. Yeah. I would, I would say that, um, when I went before, I mean, honestly, I was, 
an absolutely atrocious hunter. I had no idea. I could have never found deer, let alone elk, you know, without just being lucky. I didn't know anything about edge and, you know, native brows and all that, like just, just the different, you know, terrain features. I couldn't really read a topo map that well. And now like in 2018, when we went back out, I had my buddies drop me off nearly at the base of a mountain and I climbed up by myself and soloed into the back country. And we literally drove down the mountain to get there. I could have started at the top. What moron <laughs> does that? That was so stupid. So, you know, I, I just think back and I'm like, what an idiot. <laughs> so now, you know, for me, I would basically put camp on my back for three days and run ridge tops until I could find, you know, I'd have places picked out on maps where I felt like, you know, there were plenty of compounding features with, you know, food, water, um, and then, you know, cover, you know, dark timber nearby, which I was hunting close to Aspen. So there was no shortage of dark timber and very, very steep terrain in the continental divide there. Um, but I would run ridge tops and I'd do the same. I'd glass and everything. I feel like I could probably call decently, but I feel like if you can find elk, I think most good hunters can stalk elk without ever needing to call them. Um, it, when you catch them in their natural jam, you know, feeding in the meadows and stuff like that. Once they get into the rut frenzy stuff and everything, then it, then I could see where you would need to call them a little more or something. But, um, and obviously it helps to locate them that way, but man, it's, it's one of those things too, where really planning your meals, rest and hydration is like the biggest part. Like, cause you have to take, you know, it's not like where you get to go in the warm bed with your wife, take a shower, rejuvenate, easily make breakfast and coffee with your tap water and everything like you have to do everything so it's really it's a really difficult hunt for the most part um so i'll be looking forward to it though i think i'm going to start trying to get a little serious about the training thing here so that way die out there because yeah i'm getting yeah. older got way too much extra weight on me need to shed anyway just for around here um hunting kentucky's just kicking my butt climbing those hills man it's the footing's absolutely horrendous so but anyway um well hopefully you get back out there soon and kill you an elk and the same for me huh yeah absolutely. <clears throat> so tell us a little bit about yourself as far as you know how long you've been hunting how you got into it um what what species of game you hunt and then maybe talk a little bit about your your whitetails as far as like you know maybe like your top five or something like that yeah so i grew up with a dad who hunted and it, I don't know if it's, it just was always been in my blood, but I can remember being a little boy. And when he would bring home, you know, a deer he shot, he had a shotgun and, and 
very primitive bow, you know, from the 90s or 80s. It was an old bow, but he shot a lot of does and some small bucks. And I just remember being in the back of his truck, like just thinking it was the coolest thing in the world. And then he stopped hunting. I have two brothers. When we kind of all got into sports, he stopped hunting when I was about nine. But then when I turned 13, he bought me a Hoyt youth bow and he, we got permission on this. What I didn't know at the time was an awesome farm, but now I realize how good this farm was. And so <laughs> he, he went with me and he started showing me, you know, this is a scrape. This is a rub. My dad had the junkiest deer stands of all time. He handmade most of them. They had no seats. So you stood up the entire hunt. And my dad, um, he was so intense. He took an old screw in fold up tree step and he welded a piece of flat steel on it. And then he got a piece of, uh, of like angle iron or, or pipe, whatever it was. And he slid it over the top of that step and, and set on about a nine inch, um, circle of wood up above my head, the entire hunt. And this man, I'm not sure he breathed while he was in the stand. He didn't move. He didn't flinch. He didn't breathe. Please. And so he was, he was super intense, um, but he taught me a lot of important things about discipline and um, making your movements count and not just be up in the stand moving all around and doing all these things. But um, he, he kind of got me into it, and, man, I, I just absolutely loved it. And I actually took my, my first buck on that farm he wasn't there, but uh, I shot it with that youth bow. A few years later, I could pull that youth bow with my left pinky, and and it was that light. It was probably thirty pound pull, but I I shot. I messed up on several deer, but the first buck that I ever killed, he he goes like one forty one gross. Wow. He, he weighed two hundred and twenty five pounds field dressed, and and I'm telling you, I thought I was the best bow hunter in the world. I was when I was younger, I was so prideful and I'm like, you know, none of my friends have shot one this big with the bow. Like they don't know what they're doing and I'm some expert. And, um, I'll tell you that it, it took a lot of years before I shot another deer of that caliber. And, uh, <laughs> I had a, a lot of humbling that needed to happen in my life, but that's, that's one of the rest. Yeah. It, big it was, yeah, it was, I would hate to, there was another guy who hunted that farm who actually made his own longbows. And he said that deer was like seven or eight years old. He knew it very intimately. I just got really lucky. It was a, it was a day that it was drizzling and that deer was going down his scrape line, opening up all his scrapes. And he just happened to turn in the woods right by my stand. He turned, he came to 10 yards and he looked the other direction, like probably the luckiest hunt of my entire life. But it, it really, once that happened, it was like, I'm all in like you're hooked. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And then um, my uncle and my great grandfather, they went out West almost every year. My great grandpa hunted elk like into his eighties and he, he has killed, um, well, he passed away several years ago, but he had killed several nice six by sixes and five by fives. And my uncle would come back with all these, um, they were like slide. It was like a slideshow on an old school uh, projector that he would put in there and, and come to my house and show us all these elk in the mountains. And so um, that was kind of where I got hooked on the idea of hunting out West too. So that's kind of um, where hunting first got started for me. And then um, my dad didn't really bow hunt. We we got him back into bow hunting about five years ago, 
Um, but he was a big bird hunter. He ran a lot of bird dogs. And so I'd go quail hunting with him. Um, it was fun. It's just not quite my thing. I've tried turkeys a little bit. It's not really my thing. So primarily I focus on whitetail and I'm trying to learn the elk game. I'd love to do a mule deer hunt too, but I just, I don't have as much, I guess, capacity for squirrels or waterfowl or those things. I just mostly focus on, on whitetail and, and big game. Okay. I like it, man. That's wow. I'm still marveling over a 220 pound dressed deer. That's a, that's a really, really good deer. It's by no means like the biggest I've heard of, but that's a, like, I know how big of an animal that is. That's a big deer for your first, that was your first buck ever. Yeah. That was that first deer. That was the first deer. First deer. You're like, you're almost like my little brother. So my little brother's first deer, um, we didn't weigh it and I couldn't even try to guess what he weighed, but he was a really big, big animal. Uh, it grossed 195 inches. Whoa. First deer killed it opening day and was scared. My uncle Kenny was who kind of brought us into this thing. And he was like a football coach. Like if you shot a deer, you weren't supposed to shoot. You got chewed out and he was scared to death. And he, he was like, well, I think I got a trophy buck. I don't know. You can tell me. And the guys went up and looked at it. And, like, and of course it's the biggest deer that anyone ever killed, ever saw, you know? So, and it's just, it was 16 points. It's a massive giant deer. And that, so that deer um, it netted 178 and an eighth, but when I had it scored at 195, that was in 2021 and the deer was killed in 2004. So it's probably, probably close to two hundo if I had to guess. Um, it was, it, I mean, it's just a mega giant, um, huge, huge deer. I'll send you some pics. But I hated him for like three years after that. Because, of course, any deer, like you'd have like 140, 150 inch deer. Oh, I'd pass that. Like, dude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was an expert after that. I'm going to beat your head in if you don't shut up. So, but, um, so you're a whitetail hunter. Uh, is it okay if we mention the state you're in or would you rather keep that quiet? Oh, it doesn't bother me. Yeah, okay. I, I grew up in Northeast Missouri, uh, and I currently live in Missouri and hunt a lot of public land in Missouri. I did actually, in 2012, I lived in Iowa for one year, oh. and um, it, that was kind of when I was just first starting to understand public land, and I I should have killed uh, like a 160-inch 11-point. I had him at 30 yards, and I just, I was so cold, I, I and I was shaking so bad, I didn't get the shot off. And I had a, I had a, I drew back on a couple like 140s, 150s in Iowa. Um, so, I, so I have hunted Iowa one year on public land and did very well, especially that was before I even knew what I was doing. Um, but yeah, so Missouri and Iowa are, are the only two states where I've ever hunted whitetail. So, with finding those deer in Iowa, why do you think you were able to get on deer like that? You said it was kind of before you knew what you were doing. So, what did you know? that helped you get on those deer you feel like on public 
Yeah, so the big one, I mean, I kind of lucked into them a little bit. I, when I grew up hunting, it was like you, you hunt field edges. That's just what you do. Yeah, I don't, I don't do that as much anymore. Or <laughs> it's a whole, if di- it's a whole different ball game. But there was kind of this grass field. I wouldn't quite call it CRP. It was kind of a shorter grass field, but there was a standing strip of corn that was like twelve acres, and it, it was like probably almost a half mile long. This long, skinny strip managed for like doves and um, pheasant. But I I had this tiny little like five and a half pound lock on wind walker that somebody gave me and I put it up in this tree right on the edge. And one day I'll come around the corner and I was walking down to this spot. It was it was probably mile, mile and a half walk. Um, so I got past a little bit of people and I could just see this rack from like three or four hundred yards away. This was before I even had binoculars to hunt with, which I don't know why I didn't hunt with binoculars when I was young, but, um, I could see this rack and I just, I mean, I I was blown. I'm like, what is that? And so not knowing what I was doing, I just kept hunting the same stand all the time. Well, one night this deer came by, he slipped past me at like 60 yards back in the timber. And I got a good look at him. I'm like, that's like 155, 160 inch 11 point. Like what is happening? And then really I got lucky and I kept, I just kept hunting the same stand, which I would never recommend anyone do this now. But, um, when the rut got here, there was a, there was a little slough that kind of went up to where that cornfield was. And a lot of deer would kind of funnel in and out of that slough in the morning. Well, when it was November 17th and it was the coldest day of the year I had on every pair of clothes that I had, but I had such junky stuff back then. I was freezing to death. It was like nine in the morning. But all of a sudden, I see this doe just running like crazy. I'm like, what is going on? And this doe is running because this buck, this giant 11 points right behind her. Well, for whatever reason, she turned at like, I don't know, she was 70 yards away. She turned and started running right past my stand. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. She's going to bring him right here. And so I did the only thing that I could think of that would make her stop and put the brakes on. I I was sitting down and I stood up and drew my bow all at the same time. And she was like, what the crap? And she put the brakes on and that deer um, slowed down to a slow trot and he got right behind her and I was on him, but I was shaking. So, I mean, between this giant buck and between it being like 15 degrees and just, I was so cold and my finger was on the trigger of my release. And as soon as he got up to that doe, he took off chasing her again and I never got a shot. And I just watched him chase her all over the place and I never got a shot. So I just got lucky on that encounter. The they're out in this field that I'm talking about. There's a little Island of trees and that, that giant standing cornfields right on the backside of it. So late season, there was a herd of 50 to 60 deer. I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. I've never seen this in Missouri. 50 or 60 deer coming off the private, jumping the fence, walking through this open grass field, going past this island into this 13 acres of standing corn. And um, there was two nice bucks in this group. And, and two different nights, I tried to shoot these deer. I drew back. There was this one doe that kept busting me. Um, the first time I was standing way before they got there, I barely even flinched. I barely moved. I was barely breathing. And as soon as I started drawing, this doe busted me. But a couple of my buddies had hunted this stand before. And so I think maybe this doe had been shot at or something was going on. 
So the next, I was like two nights later, they came past me again. And this time I set it, I sat down and drew set like seated. I'm like, I'm not even going to move. And that same doe busted me again. And I, I don't know how big those bucks were exactly, but my guess is like 140 to 150 class. There was two of them. I would have shot either one. And so, I mean, that, the reason I, the reason that I was successful there is because there was standing corn on the public and all the betting was on the private. They were walking through the open grass where they could see a long ways. And I was just in this little tiny group of trees, but never, never got one down that season except for a doe. So, man, it would be sweet to live in Iowa. That's for sure. It sounds like they do some pretty good things out there further public i know when i came to your state i was i mean i didn't really get to look at like you know the wmas and stuff like that but um when i went down to the mark twain it was pretty desolate like there's no it's just big woods basically and a lot of rocks so seemed like there was a decent deer population but i haven't been back to check my cams yet so We'll see what's down there <laughs> here. Yeah, good luck. I, I, I primarily hunt north of, of I-70. And so the Ozark Mountains is a little bit outside of what I fully understand. We have a little bit creeping up close to my area, and I've dabbled just a little bit. But I'm, I'm a little unfamiliar, so I like to focus um, more on areas that I can grasp a little bit more. The big woods, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm listening to a lot of the Latitude Outdoors podcast, and I'm learning about um, these hubs. And I know you guys have been talking a lot about hub scrapes and hubs and some of the big wood stuff, but I, um, like feed trees, I, I just don't quite have a grasp on that. So I prefer to hunt more farm country North of, of I-70. Sure. So what do you feel like you have a grasp on? Do you, I mean, what, you know, you and I talk quite a bit and, you know, share like deer picks and stuff like that. And, um, you know, it seems like you're basically a, a bino scouter. Like you get out and do a lot of observing of deer all freaking summer long and just watch deer constantly. Um, do, do you feel like that's what's putting you in position basically is patterning these deer with your own eyes and being able to do it, you know, maybe from a decent little distance? And I mean, are you running cell cams? I mean, what? What do you feel like is helping you? Because I know, you know, we've talked a little bit about how you, you'd gotten on deer but didn't execute or whatever. And then and we talked a little bit like this year's the year you're going to execute. And then opening morning, bam, you executed like a boss. So w what do you feel like is putting you in those positions? Yeah, that is a really great question. And I'm going to do my best. Um, to try and explain my system. I feel like the way I hunt public land is a little bit different than a lot of people that I hear talking about it. And it may not work for everyone, but I'll try to explain my system. Um, so on, on a lot of Missouri ground that's public, you can't run cameras. So I run zero cameras. So um, that's one reason why I do some summer glassing because you can't run cameras. Um, also, because I can't run cameras, I very rarely target a specific buck. I will target areas, um, spots, but I don't target an individual buck. But I went to, where I went to college here in Missouri, 
um, that's when I first started dabbling on some public land, you know, and I was walking like 800 yards and thought I was getting away from the pressure. I was hunting like right next to the main, <laughs> hunting right next to the main trails. And, and I saw some deer and I saw a lot of sign and it took me a long time to realize like that's all night sign. And I was seeing, I was seeing, you know, decent deer, but I wasn't seeing big deer. And, um, one of the things that helped me more than anything has ever helped me is I met a guy in a parking lot, an older gentleman. He was super nice. And we just started talking and, and he, he was telling me about some deer they had harvested and I knew right where he was hunting. And he said, you know, these are good deer. But back when I was a younger man, I used to hunt back in this spot and that's where the big deer are. And so I looked out on the map and I figured out where this guy was talking about because he explained it to me. And I went back in there. And in 2013, I shot my first public land buck about a, a 150 inch nine. He was a really solid buck. And I started learning this one area and, and it started making a massive difference. Um, it wasn't until probably 2017 or 18 where I started getting really mobile doing the hanging hunts and all that stuff. But I, I put up several stands on this little 40 acre piece and I started learning this piece and I killed that deer pretty late in the season. Well, fast forward a few years and I killed a 154 inch, um, 11 in the same area. And I just started hunting this one area. I, I was over hunting it, but I, I didn't know at the time, but this one area started teaching me about deer. And I, you know, at first it, I was hunting where all the sign was, well, that's not where the deer were. And eventually I started realizing, okay, the deer are betting like two to 400 yards from where these scrapes are, from where these rubs are. And everybody's hunting these scrapes and these rubs. There's like nine deer stands within this little 40 acre piece, <laughs> but, but nobody is seeing most of these deer. And I started realizing, okay, they're in this really thick stuff up on this plateau. And then I started realizing they're there like the first week or two of the season. And then they may swing in a little bit for pre-rut, but primarily these big bucks are not betting here until late November, December, and January. And, and so I started realizing like this spot is a honey hole and it's dynamite but I'm wasting way too much time in this spot because the bucks aren't always here. And so then I said, okay, could I find another spot? And so I began kind of this journey of finding different spots on different pieces of public land. And what I have now is an archive of probably close to 30 spots. And so, you know, you, you, you were talking about glassing in the summer I have several spots that I glass really hard in the summer because I know that there's summer spots. Let's say there's a cornfield that meets up to a bean field. There's a little strip of timber and then there's like a patch of CRP behind it. And I know, okay, that's a summer bedding spot. And historically for the past three years, there's been five shooter bucks in this spot that I've glassed in the summer. And so I know for the first two weeks of the season, I have three or four spots just like that. And so for those first two or three weeks, I'm going to focus all my time and effort on the bucks that I glassed over the summer. Then once that window closes and they shift off of that summer bedding, I have four or five spots that now I'm going to shift for the next phase. And then I have four or five spots on four or five different pieces of public where I'm going to hunt 
um, I'm going to hunt doe groups. I'm going to hunt some rut funnels. I'm going to hunt um, some pinch points. And then I know, okay, I have some late season, really good dynamite bedding spots that I'm going to hunt late November, early December and January. And so I've kind of created like in my head, this, this map of here's my five spots I hunt during this, these three weeks, here's my five spots, spots I hunt during these three weeks. And I'm not necessarily hunting specific bucks, but I'm hunting specific primarily bedding areas, except for what, you know, the pre-rut rut time period. And that is how I have found success. I've been able to find those spots on properties. And, and if I find a spot on a given property, I've been able to replicate it. You know, a lot of these places are two, three, 4,000 acres, 6,000 acres. And if I find a spot like that, I've, I've started realizing like, okay, what other spots on the map on this given piece of property sets up like this? And I'm finding the exact same things. And so I've been able to find these spots. I mean, really, it's almost like historical data. You know how people use trail cameras for sure. historical data. Yeah. And, and like, I mean, there was a spot last year. I had not been in there a single time all season. It was, it gets gun hunted really hard. It was after the rut. I went in there for the first set of the year. And I, I, I'm scouting my way in. So I don't, I don't want you to think I'm not doing any scouting, but I scouted my way in and I saw the rubs and I saw the things. I'm like, okay, I'm feeling good about this. It, it has a unique shape and there's a really thick bedding area, a mile and a half from either of the parking lots that you can walk in there. And if you come in from the backside, you have to cross over a small river. Okay. And, and I is the only time I hunted it. I had hunted it um, that season. Like I hadn't, I hadn't been in there yet, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And so I go in there and I see some scrape or I saw a scrape and I saw a couple rubs and I'm like, okay, I'm seeing the sign that I need to see. I saw some decent tracks along the river when I crossed it. And so I go and I set up my stand. My problem was I wasn't quite aggressive enough. And I set up about 60 yards from where I thought they would come out. And 15 minutes before dark, I had two shooters come out at 60 yards and they were going to work right past me. They were coming diagonal and I was going to get a shot. And it, it was crazy. I, I believe it was December and these two bucks, lo and behold, start fighting each other. And I'm just sitting here watching it. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. And I thought they're going to come my way. Well, they finally break up their fight. And instead of walking my way, they both go the dead opposite way. And so I didn't get a shot, but um, you know, that was my first set on the property of the year without doing almost any scouting. I scouted my way in, but other than that, no pre-scouting. And I had that encounter with two shooter bucks. You know, I'm, I'm going to say they were like 140 caliber, 140, 145, which for me, if it's 140 on public, I'm probably going to shoot it. I just, I'm, I'm not that picky. Sure. That's a big deer. Were they, were they legit fighting or just sparring? Somewhere in between, it wasn't a knockdown drag out, but it wasn't just a little hitting the times together. Like they, they were, they were moving each other around a decent amount, like to the point where I was, I was considering, um, shimmying down the tree and trying to sneak in and get a shot. But, um, that yeah, I, I, yeah, I was, I was pretty heartbroken, um, to say the least, but, but so, so I don't know if that makes sense, but it's like, uh, 
you know, I'm, I'm scouting for specific spots for specific times of year. And so I do glass a lot in the summer. Some of it is taking inventory saying, okay, I know there's a bedding area, you know, half a mile from here. And I know in November, those deer are going to be bedded somewhere close to there. So sometimes in the summer, I'm trying to say like, okay, are the, are there some shooter bucks that are going to gravitate toward that bedding area? Yes or no. And just, you know, but that's a guess. But mostly what I'm trying to do is say, okay, I know where the summer bedding is for this particular area. Are there shooters in there? And the spot where I shot my deer opening day of this season, I had somewhere between seven and 10 shooters lined up for this one area. Now I knew when they shed their velvet, there's not going to be 10 shooter bucks in here. They're going to shift. Some of them are going to move, but I was last year. I, there were still several in there. Unfortunately, I missed opening week because of a death in the family. When, by the time I hunted that spot, the second week of the season, all the deer were gone. Mm. Fresh, the pressure had pushed them out. The beans had turned yellow. They had shifted out of there. So this year, three months before season, my game plan opening day was I'm going to be in there opening day and I'm going to hunt the backside of this bedding area. Depending on what wind I have will be which side of the bedding area I hunt. But I know that I got a couple day window to kill one of these deer and opening day, I saw 10 bucks and the number two and number three deer that I had filmed over the summer happened to be two of the deer that were in there. I, I shot the number two deer. And then 15 minutes later, I had the number three deer, which was probably close to 155 inch deer at 15 yards. If, if he, if he had his right G2, he would have been mid one six mid to upper one sixties. He's a phenomenal deer. Um, wow. the, deer I sh- the deer I shot was just shy of the one sixty range. Um, but I knew, I knew from three years of scouting this spot, I have one week to go make it happen. And my best chance is going to be opening day or the next day. And so I wasted a lot of time filming and scouting. And, and I knew though, I got to go all in. I got to get aggressive. I can't, I can't see. I don't waste a lot of time when I get to these spots, I'm going in for the kill. Now, sometimes, sometimes um, I'm hanging and hoping because I haven't necessarily fully scouted it. My summer spots, I'm fully scouting because I'm glassing and I'm doing these things. But when it gets a little later in the season, um, sometimes I'm going in there blind, not knowing if there's actually a buck bedded in there at that time or not. And so a lot of times, you know, I hunt when I can, it doesn't matter what the weather is, what the moon is, what time of day it is. If I can get out there, I'm going to go get out there. Um, and if I can, I want to go hunt a morning in this bedding area. And so what I'll do is hunt the morning and then I'll spend the next couple hours after my morning hunt, scouting it to determine, is there one bedded in this spot? If I can find a big track, if I can find any sign, then I'll say, okay, I'm going to keep hunting this spot. If, if it looks barren, I'm going to say, okay, I'm going to go on to the next spot. If it's an afternoon set and it's a virgin set in a spot, I'm going to scout my way in there and try to determine, is there one in there? And sometimes I'll hunt. And sometimes if I'm just not seeing the sign, I'll just keep scouting and scouting and scouting. And I may scout the whole area and walk back to the car and just say, nope, there's not one in this spot this year, but more times than not, they bed in the same spot. That that's kind of how I've been doing it the last few years. 
when you're, it's funny to hear you say that too. And it kind of gives me confidence because I'm the same way. I'll scout way more than I hunt. And every once in a while, I'll throw one of those hanging hopes in there. And then I'm like, what are you doing? You idiot. Stop. Stay out of the tree. If you, if you don't have something that just makes you feel giddy inside, don't waste your time. Go home, hang out with the wife and kids, go scout, do whatever you need to do, get some work done, but don't just sit there and think that a good deer is going to walk by you because 99.99999% of the time it ain't happening. So, yeah, I mean, so I would say if I'm going to hang in hope, it's generally in the mornings, you know, because if I just have a random morning to hunt, I'm going to go to a spot that I know historically there's deer in there. And, but my goal of, of that is to say, okay, I have very limited time to hunt. I may not be back in this spot for three weeks. And so it's like, if I spend all my time scouting, well, three weeks later, that buck's probably not in the same bedding area. Yeah. So, so sometimes in the mornings I'll hunt for, let's say two hours. And if I don't see anything, I'm not, I'm not frustrated because my goal is, okay, I spent two hours hunting. Now I'm going to go spend two or three hours scouting right after this hunt. So it's not a wasted trip um, in that sense. Like, like the goal is, Hey, if I can get lucky, I'll get lucky. But if not, I'm going to go scout and figure out where are the deer at in this area. But I, sometimes I'll do a hang and hope because I have the historical data that this spot has been good. And, and it's also like, I just, I have a hard time of like, man, I'm gonna, I'm gonna just scout so hard for a week because it's like, well, uh, the next time I'm going to be here is a month later. And so sometimes what I found myself doing early on is just, I was chasing a ghost that I could never catch up to because with no cameras out, with only being able to go back to a spot once or twice a week at most, I was always behind the deer and I was never encountering them because I couldn't, I couldn't get enough time in the spot to figure it out. Now that I've kind of figured some of these spots out, like last year, um, I dropped my daughter off on a Friday at daycare at eight o'clock. I was in my stand by nine thirty. It this was this was late September. Every when I pulled in, there was like five guys coming out of the woods, and I'm just <laughs> pulling in right. And I go in there, and I set up. And within fifteen minutes of being set up in my tree, um, I had I had a really nice mature eight point that it, one of the bigger ones I've ever seen, probably close to a 150 class eight point at like 90 yards. Wow. He was bed. He was bedded out in this field and he stood up to shift beds. I tried to make a stock on him. I was unsuccessful in my attempt, but I was like, okay, they're in here. I saw like, I saw one little buck on the fringes, but that was the only deer that I saw. So then the next Friday we had the same wind. I'm like, oh, here we go. I'm gonna go back and we'll hunt the same tree and we're gonna see if we can make it happen. So I once again I I drop my daughter off at daycare and I get in there at like nine, nine thirty. Within 15 minutes again, I had a nice shooter buck bedded, or I saw him stand up out of his bed at probably 80 yards. And I was thinking about how to make a play on him. And I was sitting there for a while watching him, waiting to see, you know, what's he going to do? Can I, can I try and stalk him? And then another shooter buck 
comes out of the woods off to my right, walks to 55 yards. And I'm like, oh, baby, it's about to happen. And he beds down. And <laughs> unfortunately, for the next four hours, I, for an hour and a half straight, I had my release on my string and I was ready to pull back at any second. And then finally, I'm like, okay, I can't, I can't set like this for, you know, for the whole day. But for four hours, I barely took my, my eyes off this spot for 10 seconds. And it was really windy. I was in a really small tree. I was so amped up after four hours that by the time this deer stood up and walked toward me, I blew the shot. Um, so that was on me. But then the next time it was two weeks later before I could get back in there again. And I started seeing a whole bunch of does and some younger bucks in there. And it became apparent really quick. Okay. These bucks aren't in here anymore. And they weren't in there until I think, um, I told another one of my friends about this field and they hunted it and had a little bit of luck late season but it's like they were only in there for a window of time and and then they were gone but that's what i've found with a lot of public land bucks is they they're in specific bedding areas for two to three weeks at a time i mean occasionally you'll find a buck bedded in the same area all year but very rarely in missouri do i see that i see them bedding two weeks here three weeks here and so that's what I try to key on is, okay, I know historically this time of year, this is where they bed at. As I started, as I started developing this system of hunting spots systematically um, and, and shifting every, every two to three weeks, I, I have just found spots that every single year they're holding big deer at the same time of year. Now, if you go hunt it early season, you're wasting your time. If you go hunt it a different time, it's like, rut you're wasting your time but i i have I, i've just figured out that okay this time of year the deer like to be in this spot and then like i said i've been able to replicate it you know one of the properties has a lot of crp and a few years ago i hunted it and i was walking this crp patch and <laughs> usually when i walk crp if i'm serious i'll be clipped in with an arrow knocked ready to potentially shoot one well i it would it was a long day. I wasn't finding much. I was putting boots on the ground. I mean, I, I walked, I don't know, five miles, found almost zero sign. I was getting discouraged, popped up on the edge of the CRP field. I start walking and this little buck jumps up in front of me about 30 yards. And I'm like, Oh, you know, and I didn't even think to, okay, like get ready because there was one behind him. that was about 180 inches. And oh. I I've seen footage of this deer and, um, you know, one of my friends chased him pretty hard last year. We've seen him this year. He he was legit like 180 inch deer. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Yeah, I could, I literally could have shot him. He stood up so slow and, and was broadside to me for a second. If I'd have been paid, if I would have been paying attention, I could have killed him. But I, so I hunted him for a few days with no success and I was running out of time. And so I was like, you know, I wonder, I wonder if I could just go walk some other areas that look like this on this property. And I started blowing big bucks out of their beds left and right. I mean, I, I jumped a 150, I jumped a 160, and I'm like, holy cow. And so then I just started realizing, like, what am I doing? Like, I need to start looking for these areas and I need to start replicating what I'm seeing. And once I started, once I started figuring some of these things out and replicating these spots, I started realizing, you know what, there's a lot of overlooked spots. People don't like to hunt CRP, you know, and, and a lot of the times the deer are bedded before daylight. But what I found is 
9, 10, 11 o'clock in the morning when, you know, when the sun is really hitting, when the, the, the day winds pick up, when the thermals are switching, a lot of times those bucks are making a shift, you know, maybe in the same bedding area, maybe it's only 50 yards, but they're standing up and they're making a shift. That's when nobody else is in the woods. But if you're right there in tight on them, you're seeing deer that nobody else is seeing. And, you know, if it's, if the CRP is four to six feet tall, if you're not right on top of them, you're never going to see that deer. But now all of a sudden I'm seeing all these big bucks that I've never even, I never dreamed I could see. I mean, and, and they're holding so tight. So a couple of years ago, um, my brother, we, we were at this men's retreat out at, out at this popular place and my brother only had two days to hunt. And so we were scouting like crazy. Well, we started running some CRP fields more, more to scout than anything. But there's one CRP field I've seen several bucks and I'd never seen a giant, but I found a big shed in it and I told him where to set up. And I was like, Hey, I'm going to try and wind bump this CRP field to you. And I started walking down. It's, it's the CRP fields, like 200 yards from a main road. Like people drive past it all the time to hunt, like to go to these parking lots and stuff. <laughs> but I started walking down the back fence row and I'm going all of a sudden two monster beds. I mean, like some of the biggest beds I've ever seen in my life were right on the line of the shadow line. And I'm like, Oh man, this looks like there's a big deer in here, but I'm like, I don't know. So I just started making S's all throughout this field. And these deer, sometimes they won't jump until you're 20 yards from them. Sure. I got within 50 yards of the, of this big deer had no idea it was there. I make an S and I come back the other way. I jump a couple does. He still doesn't move. And I'm weaving back and all of a sudden this deer jumps up in front of me and I go, that's a 160. Like you got to be kidding me. And I, I hear him run into the woods. Well, then a couple seconds later, my brother is like whistling at me. And I'm like, what's he, he's supposed to be way over here. Why is he whistling at me? And I walk over there and he goes, bro, I just shot that deer. And I was like, you're messing with me. He goes, no, come look at the blood. And I looked and I almost threw up and I was like, how big a deer you think you just shot? And he goes, Oh, like a 140. And I said, Well, what are you doing right here? I told you to be down here. Well, he wasn't in the right spot, but he ended up shooting a 170-inch 10-point out of this CRP field that was 200 yards from a major road. And all these people are driving past it every day to go hunt. But I knew that based on everything I'd seen on the rest of this property, that this was an overlooked spot and there was a good chance that it was going to be holding a buck. I, I didn't know it was going to be holding a 170, um, but I, I already filled my tag. And I went, like I said, I was trying to get him on a deer. And so he shot 170 inch 10 point. We'll take and, a bonus sooner. Yeah. So it like, you know, and some people get mad, like, oh, you shouldn't be wind bumping. Like I wasn't wind bumping the whole property. I wasn't going in areas where I actively knew guys were hunting with tree stands. I was going into these overlooked spots that nobody yep. was at. And these deer, that's where the deer are at. And I've, I, I've seen it over and over again on this property. The, the, the spot where I shot my early season velvet buck this year, that deer died 350 yards from a major gravel road that people drive down all the time. Hey everybody, Rick here from Fueled by the Outdoors, and I'm here to tell you about a wonderful company, Saddies, custom ammunition and gun works. 
Aaron Satterfield and his family have been turning out some awesome game loads lately. Uh, I've been using the Saddies Fatties uh, turkey loads, and I got to tell you, they stop a bird dead. Chris uh, used the 20 gauge this year. I used the 12. Josh used the 20. And uh, my son actually killed one with a 410 this year with uh, one of the Saddies loads. And my God, do they put the birds down like crazy. Aaron Satterfield and his family have a wide ranging array of ammunition, custom game loads, predator loads, turkey loads, the Saddies Fatty, and also they do gun work. Please get a hold of them with any questions that you have in terms of your custom ammunition needs. Go to saddiesllc.com. That's S-A-T-T-I-E-S-L-L-C.com and tell them that Rick from Fueled by the Outdoors sent you. And and so people are like, how are you seeing all these big bucks? I'm like, man, they're right next to the road. All you like, so many people are driving past them, and they just don't even know it. If you literally get out of your, I mean, you can glass them some at some points in the summer from your vehicle, but if you get out of your vehicle and walk a hundred yards, you could film, you know, five to ten deer over 150 inches. But people just like, they're just assuming like there's no deer in here. I guess. Or they're driving past it to spots that look way better. Yeah. And it's, <laughs> I, I think I've a lot of done. people, it, it's funny. I think a lot of people get drawn into ag and it sounds to me, and please correct me if I'm wrong here, but some of the things you've described. So you basically described what I've been getting into, which is native grasses, which seem to be your best bet for all wildlife. And then, it provides food, water, cover, you name it. And then the other thing is like with you mentioning like a cornfield butting up to a, a bean field with CRP and, you know, a strip of what like a, a very, very diverse little ecosystem there where, you know, you've got multiple different types of food that could be around for a minute. And then the other thing you're talking about hits home a lot um deer shift every two to three weeks food shifts pressure shifts there's so much going on from right before deer season until the end of it you know with you know you start off with your your native brows and your beans and and all that different stuff and then you know you start getting into these feed trees and you know certain types of oaks are dropping and uh, more preferred. And then, you know, as you get later, food gets a little more scarce and they're starting to feed on the reds and then, you know, chestnut oaks, which are something that I never find deer really messing with until later. Um, they, they start pounding them like it's a, a corn pile in January, only it's an acorn pile in January. So, um, it's interesting to hear you talk about that though. Cause last year, it was like I was always just a little behind, like I was figuring out what was going on. And by the time you figured it out, and and a lot of this was in Indiana, I'll say, which is like a it was like a two and a half hour drive for me each time I wanted to hunt. So I could only really do that on the weekends. And each week I'd find something new. But then by the time I could make it back, it it was basically over. Um, cause once you start getting into the more scarce food sources in those later seasons, if it's not like a giant ag field, it's getting pounded now. 
and then it's gone. So it was pretty cool to hear though. Um, so man, congrats on your, your deer. Um, I really want to kind of link up with you, whether it be here in Ohio or out in Missouri or something and do some hunting, scouting, whatever we can. But, uh, sounds like you're putting glass on a lot of big deer and using your head in the right way and, uh, really developing each and every year and figuring things out, man. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's always a learning and a growing experience. I think for me, you know, a couple of key things when I started learning about, you know, thermals and the wind, that was, that made a big difference. When I started being meticulous with my entry and exit routes, that was a huge thing for me. Um, but probably the biggest thing is I, I had in my head from hunting private back home that this is what deer do. And I, I, I've got several really good friends that hunt a lot of the same public land as me. They're better hunters than me. And so, um, you know, it's like iron sharpening iron though, though we talk so much and those guys help me. And, but, but it, what I had to learn is I got to stop thinking what I think the deer are going to do and just let them show me what they're going to do. And what I started finding is what they were showing me they were doing was way different than what I was expecting them to do. And once I, once I figured that out, that, that changed everything. And I stopped, I stopped trying to think like a hunter and started trying to think more like a deer, like, okay, there's 20 guys hunting this spot. Yeah. It doesn't make sense that he's going to bet over there except for nobody else is over there. And there's a little pocket where he can survive. And so that's where he's at, even though it doesn't make sense to us that it makes sense to him for survival reasons. And, and, and the other thing about having a, a group of guys is, you know, some people hunt hunters. <laughs> I'm the opposite. I'm the opposite. I, if I, if I know, you know, let's say I'm in Kentucky and I know you and Jake Bush and Josh are down there hunting. I'm going to go, I don't want to compete with those guys. I'm going to go somewhere else. Right. But the one thing, the one thing that I do is because my friends trust me and I trust them, we share data with each other and we share Intel and we share points. And I'll say, Hey brother, I was driving down the road last night past your spot that I know that you're focused on. And I saw a nice 10 cross the road and they do the same thing for me. And sometimes the difference between killing a deer and not killing a deer is one piece of Intel that one of my friends gives me, Hey, I saw a guy doing this in here last night. I saw this deer cross the road here. And so having a group of guys that we don't hunt in the same areas, but where we're all like focused together and where we're not trying to step on each other's toes has been so vital to my success. And it's helped me out so incredibly much. Like I, I just can't even explain that. And I know you, you guys kind of have that you and Josh and Rick. And I mean, I would just encourage other people, man, if you can link up with somebody, you don't necessarily have to hunt with them, but where you're hunting some of the same properties and you can bounce ideas off of each other. It helps so much networking man it's it's huge and and it's always tough to beat a good team you know you can be solo all you want but when you got people helping you especially really good hunters like that man that's that's a deadly combo i i feel fortunate me and josh talk every day about different spots here in ohio kentucky indiana you name it we're constantly sending each other points and everything and we Anytime one of us goes scouting, there's a phone call or video messages or something, and we're just 
pouring information into each other like hey look check out what i found today you know whatever and of course we're nerds so we eat it up um but it's it's tough to beat a good team man i agree 100 percent. the whole networking deal that you that's tough to tough to beat honestly um a lot of those guys are out there walking around basically by themselves more than likely trying to get it done and uh, you know kudos to them but it always seems like you know you see the same thing the guys at the top are collaborating and the guys everywhere else are competing and when you figure that out you know which i feel like it takes you know us to get a little older <laughs> generally some of your friends are quite young though um yeah but they they're man they're killers they're they're, they're killers for sure it just well, I- I tell you what, you know, one time one of my friends goes, he, he was telling me about an eight point up in the corner of one, the Northeast corner of one of these properties. And I go, I know that eight point, like he has a distinctively crazy white rack. I'm like, I know what eight point that is. And, and we had just kind of met each other and I was brave enough to share my, my hunt stand, a screenshot with him. And we had like 20 pins in the exact same spot. Nice. And so we were competing. We were literally competing against each other and had no idea. Yeah. And after that, that's when our friendship formed. And that's when we said, okay, like, let's stop competing because we didn't know we were. And let's start working together. And, you know, and it it helped so much. But it's like, you know, this spot was literally two and a half miles from one parking lot. And it was a mile and a half from the other. But the walk was like crazy up and down on these ridges. You know, and so I'm like, nobody else is in here hunting. This guy has 20 pins in the exact same spot as me. You know, so so there's other guys out there busting it. You know, it's like sometimes sometimes I, I like to think I'm the only one. And then it's like, no, I got three friends who make me look like I'm I'm amateur hour deer hunter and and they're they're putting in the work, you know. And Jake Bush is talking about scouting, you know, 900 miles in a season or so, you know, just cr- all this crazy stuff. And I'm like, man, guys are out there putting in the work and so if you can network with the guys who are putting in the work then you're going to be way ahead of the game oh yeah it's deadly dude so tell us um tell us a little bit about learn gear hunt yeah so i started that several years ago um there's several mobile hunting groups on facebook that i'm a member of and I got tired of guys always saying like, Hey, what's the best tree stand? Everybody says the same thing. Hey, what's yeah. the best camo? Oh, it's, if you're not running Sitka, you're a nobody. And I am a person who's on a very tight budget. I got two young girls at home. Um, I work at a church. My wife works at a school. We don't make a lot of money. And you know, some of these products are really good. And I, I think they're super high quality and they're the best for some people, but they're not the best for me because I can't afford them. And so I created Learn Gear Hunt really to start creating lists of gear and to help people find gear that fits their budget, their hunting style, their, you know, it's like, well, maybe a Lone Wolf um, custom gear tree stand is the best for your scenario, but maybe for my scenario, an Elevate Rise stand is going to be the best for me. And maybe you need a starter um, XOP saddle and maybe this guy over here needs a TX5 custom gear. Right. And so my goal with creating Learn Gear Hunt, it was originally just about the gear 
trying to help people find the gear that best fit their situation. And, and also just letting them know, here's all the options that are out there. You know, it's like, you think you only have two options. There's actually 45 options and you just didn't know <laughs> it. And so I created that. And then I just, I'm like, well, what other list can I create? And, you know, I, uh, I used to, used to be really big into catfishing. I still do a little bit, you know, and I made a list of all the catfish rods and then I started making lists of podcasts and YouTube, but it kind of evolved to where it's like learn gear hunt. Um, it's not just about the gear. The gear is just a small portion to it. Gear doesn't kill deer, but it definitely can help you in your process. You know, if you're carrying 40 pound hanging hunt system into the woods, you're miserable. If you're yes. carrying, if you're carrying a 15 pound system that fits your, your body type, all of a sudden things that seemed impossible before are way easier. And so I just started making lists, but I was like, man, I want it to be about more than gear. I wanted it to be about my hunting, the gear that I use while I'm hunting, my growth as a hunter, me learning as a hunter. And then so it kind of evolved into learn gear hunt. And so I'm trying to put out some resources and, and guide people to, hey, if you want to learn more about it, go check out this YouTube, go check out this podcast, go read these articles. You know, if you want to learn about gear, here's here's the options that are out there. Message me if you have questions. If you want to follow my hunts, you know, I got my own little blog and and so it's it's still evolving. Um, I would love to start filming my hunts. I got a camera arm. I would love to do um, some more things with that. It, it's it's been evolving with me as a hunter. Um, but it, it it's just I just love it. I just love doing it. And so it's just been something that I love to do on this side. And the more serious I continue to get about hunting, the more serious I get about it. And so hopefully someday. Um, it'll be a platform that can really just help hunters to become um, better, whether it's to get better gear, whether it's to learn more, what, whatever it is, just to help them um, learn and grow and become better hunters. I love it, dude. Um, what platforms can that be found on? So I have Learn Gear Hunt on Facebook. I don't currently have my YouTube channel up. Um, I'm Charles Golson on Facebook. I just recently added Instagram. I have one post up, so I'm still learning about that. <laughs> it's just C.A. Golson on Instagram. Eventually, I'm going to move um, my Learn Gear Hunt over to Instagram too. Um, but I'm still in the process of kind of learning Instagram and creating some of those things, getting my YouTube back up and rolling. Um, and then Learn Gear Hunt also has a website, yes? Oh, yes. Yeah. So a lot of that information is just really hard to put on social media. So I created a website. Um, you can go to the the Learn Gear Hunt Facebook page and, and see the URL. It's kind of complicated. Eventually, I'm going to buy a nice um, domain and have something simple that people can go. Right now, it's like a we some sort of weird Weebly domain. But um, yeah, go check the website out. If anybody has any questions, I'll do my best. Um, to help you and to answer your questions, but just know, you know, I've killed, I've killed six bucks over 140 on public land, but you know, I've been a bow hunting since I was 13 years old and I have messed up a hundred bucks over 140 on public land. And I'm, I'm just a normal guy. I'm just a weekend warrior out here trying to do the best I can. People see the highlight reel on Facebook and they think, Oh, you're some super public land hunter killer. No, I'm not. Um, nothing comes natural to me. I research like crazy. I learn like crazy and I continue to get better. But 
I mess up way more than I succeed. And, you know, I'm, I'm nobody special, but if there's any way I can help you, I want to do the best that I can to help you. Heck yeah, dude. Well, I've got a buddy that, that gave me some pretty good advice once he told me to fail fast. He's a business coach. He Mm. said, I I was like, all right, I'm starting this expo thing. What kind of coach me up, bro? And he's like, fail fast. I was like, what? He's like, don't sit back and talk about how you're going to do something or what. Go do it and screw it up. You're going to screw up plenty. And that's now talking to guys who are getting into this. I tell them the same thing because everybody, of course, has the same questions, right? Like, what wind should I hunt this? And what do you think about this spot? And they send you a place you've never been to. And it's like, listen, you need to go out there and look at that. I have no way of telling you, you know, I can't tell you what the pressure's like. I don't know what kind of oaks you have and and native browse and water and bedding and all that. I have no way of knowing that. You have to go put boots to ground, go jump some deer up, go screw it up, mess it up and learn. And man, I, it's rough to mess up, but man, that's literally the best learning that you do it really etches it in the back of your mind too so you don't forget some of that stuff oh 100 percent. i actually this may sound crazy but i have a running spreadsheet of every big deer that i encounter throughout every season whether i hit it and didn't recover it whether i missed the deer completely whether i blew the encounter it doesn't matter what it is if it's a deer over 140 and we had an encounter i put it on a spreadsheet and come the beginning of the season, my motivation is that spreadsheet. And like all the times I've messed up in the past, here's all the lessons I learned the hard way and let's not repeat these mistakes, but let's use it to fuel this year. Heck yeah. By the outdoors, right? Fueled by the outdoors. So before I let you go, I want you to tell me about the shot on your deer. Uh, What head did you use? Uh, Bow setup, arrow setup, all that. How, what was the deer's body language? Uh, how far did it go? Give me just the, just the whole spiel here. Cause I love hearing these stories and putting everything together for myself when I shoot a deer. Okay. So like I said, the tree that I picked out is 415 yards total from this gravel road, but I knew if I'm going to have any chance to kill a deer, I got to come in the long way. So I parked about a half a mile away. Um, there's a creek kind of like there's a levee and there's a creek that's close by. And I knew even though my wind was in the wrong direction, it was such a low wind speed. It was going to pull my thermals down. So I slowly walked down this levee knowing my thermals were going down the whole time. And actually I had two trees pinned, um, on, on my hunt stand of, of where I was going to potentially set. I walked past the tree and you ever just have one of those moments where you're like, I'm not in the right spot. <laughs> yes. Like, like I walk past this tree and I, and I got about 20 yards past and I'm like, hold up, something's wrong. I'm like, I got to go back. I got to go back to the other tree. It's just in the right spot. And so that I wish I had, I wish I could tell you why that was just my gut. And I've learned the hard way. If I don't listen to my gut, bad things happen. I, I should have killed a deer last year. That I didn't because I didn't listen to myself. I picked the kill tree out and I didn't, I didn't set it and the deer came out at 60 instead of 30 right past my kill tree. But anyway, um, so I go back and I set up in this tree 
and it's a couple minutes before shooting light and I have really bad hearing. I was a mortarman in the Marine Corps, so I can't hear anything. Oh, wow. And, and I hear this noise walking and I'm, I cannot locate this deer. And I, but I, it, I know it's a deer and I'm looking in the woods kind of behind me and I'm like, where's this deer come from? And I look and this deer, uh, the first time I see it is 20 yards away on the levee in my wind, in one of my windows. And I'm like, oh my goodness. And it's by the time it walks. So I miss my first window. It keeps walking towards me. And luckily the sun like is just barely peeking up on the horizon and I can barely see my peep in my, in my um, pen. And I shot this deer at 20 yards broadside two minutes into the season. Jeez. And I actually didn't make the greatest shot because um, there were some branches out there and I think I got tunnel vision and I hit one of those branches. And, um, but I shot and when I shot, I, it made a lot of weird noises. So that's why I'm pretty sure I hit a branch first, then hit the deer. I knew it hit the deer, but it, he kind of like slowly jogged off, which I'm like, he didn't mule kick. He didn't sprint. You know, it wasn't a death run, but he stopped at 30 yards and I'm like, something's wrong with him. And then I watched him take two steps and he bedded down at like 50, 55 yards. Like I had my, I had my bow dialed to 55. I was going to shoot him again, but he laid down and then I waited and waited. I waited like three or four hours um, because I wasn't sure on the shot. And I just didn't want to risk it, but he never stood back up. So I, when we got up there, like he, he had expired very quickly. Um, but so I'm sitting there in the tree and it was like 15 minutes later, this little like seven point or six point, he was busted up, comes walking past me on the same trail on this levee. And I'm like, man, you gotta be kidding me. Well, then my number three target buck, this like 155 inch deer walks, you know, he walks in and he's for like, 15 minutes he's at like 15 yards and i'm sitting here filming him with my phone and i watched him go and he beds it like i thought he bedded at 120 yards and so i called one of my buddies who was out there hunting part of the property and i said hey you want to come make a stock on him and so i didn't go check on my deer because i was waiting for him well um throughout the course of the first couple of hours i saw 10 bucks like 130 inch eight point 120 inch eight i had 10 different bucks that I saw in this area and I was filming them with my phone and just like, this is unbelievable, you know, and it was about eight thirty nine o'clock. My wind started shifting right out onto that bedding area. But those thermals that the, the thermal pull from that Creek was um, really the saving grace of what allowed me to shoot that deer. Um, you know, I did a hanging hunt setup, So I used three 17 inch out on a limb Shakar um, FXD sticks I had the new Elevate Rise stand. I shoot a 2017 Prime Rise bow. Um, my arrows are like Bass Pro X1 Pro arrows. Um, I just use Muzzy 3-blade 100 grain. I guess I'm really old school. There's 45,000 <laughs> 45, broadhead companies, and I shoot a Muzzy 3-blade. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, the, you know, I, so after my friend got there and stalked that deer, um, he's like, why don't you go ahead and look for yours? I followed blood to 30 yards and then I found a big pile of where he had stopped. And then he was laying about five feet away. The craziest thing to me was when I saw him at first light, I'm like, man, this deer looks weird. It almost looks like he's in velvet. I've never seen a Missouri deer in velvet at the start of the season on September 15th. Oh, wow. And so I'd never seen it before. And so I was like, I didn't tell a lot of people he was in velvet because I didn't want to look like a fool. Like, oh yeah, I just shot a velvet buck and he wasn't. 
And then I get up to him. I'm like, that deer was in velvet. And as soon as I got there, I realized what deer it was. And it was the number two deer on my hit list. And, uh, you know, he died, like I said, 350 yards from, from a major road, but you know, everybody, there's a cornfield there, there's a bean field there. And, you know, these deer were primarily living in this native browse right on the back side of all of that. Yeah, they would go and feed in the beans and I would film them every night, but they're spending most of their time in the natives. And I, <laughs> I don't know what, I don't know what I did field dressing. I didn't think I nicked this guy's stomach at all when I was cutting him open, but long story short is the stomach exploded. Everybody had a great laugh except for me. And man, this deer's stomach could not have been more full with native brows. There was a little bit of corn in there, but I mean, he like, there were like 40 pounds of native brows in his stomach, you know? And so it's like everybody, everybody's focused on the beans and the corn, but this deer, he was walking down the levee eating native brows and he was, he was about to go bed. He just walked right past me and he was, I was on the backside of the bedding. And, and so that's, that's the story is it, I didn't know what to do cause he was velvet. I never, I never dreamed of shooting a velvet, but four of us carried him out. One guy had the head the whole time to kind of protect it, but it would dude, it was crazy. I'm still on cloud nine. It was crazy. I would be too. That's phenomenal. And it's really cool to hear about that, that browse being in his stomach. It's I've heard people talk about how there's all kinds of different native grasses, flowers, you know, you name it that are higher in protein and overall nutrition than beans and, you know, all the different ag, uh, where you find the deer and it makes sense. I mean, I started getting into it, you know, years back when we kept jumping deer and seeing deer in the weed fields that we'd call it. And we're like, man, well, what are the, you know, where's the food? Well, it's everywhere, <laughs> you know, have food literally everywhere. And then kind of adding to it, I started kind of, asking questions about winter wheat and everything. And people started talking about how a lot of this browse, these grasses and everything, that's where they get like a massive amount of their water. I'm like, Oh my God, well that man, that makes so much sense as to why a buck can stay bedded up all day and never have, you know, on an 85 degree humid day and never drop down to water ever. I'm not saying they won't, but, I mean, running cams on plenty of rivers, ponds, lakes, water holes, you name it. You ain't got bucks. I don't have bucks visiting them even every day, let alone, you know, multiple times a day. So that, you know, adding that up, it's just, it's really neat to hear. We've, and, and like you said, you know, you, you don't see the pressure there. It's harder. It's, it's really hard here to hunt those places because it's very difficult to even find a tree to get into at all. Um, most of it is like shrubbery and stuff. So it would make sense to me, you know, Oh man, I never smell a hunter in here other than, you know, maybe bird hunters and rabbit hunters, which are later on in the year anyway. Well, of course they're going to be there. And then, you know, you talking about them, you know, butting up to the ag and everything like that's the most perfect situation you could ever dream of for good whitetails. So really cool to hear, man. Um, oh yeah. 
Yeah, I got some friends. You may have to see if you can get them on the podcast, but they, I summer scout, you know, 15 days. They summer scout like 45 days. And they film giant deer all the time in native fields right next to, right next to really good bean fields. And the deer, they may not even film the deer ever in the bean field. You know, they're, they're out in the browse the majority of the time. So it, I think, I mean, I like to glass bean fields just cause it's easy, but you know, the, there's a lot of deer hiding in spots that people are just overlooking like oh, crazy. Yeah. Because they're focused like, oh, I can only see it on a bean field. It's like, well, there's only certain times a year that they're even like really focused on that yeah. bean field and not all bean fields are created equal. And no. Yeah, it's it's very interesting. I'm I'm still learning about the natives. You guys just had a really awesome podcast about natives and but but man, the the natives is where I see them loving to bed. And obviously they feed on it too, but man, if if you can find those patches of natives, even if they're small. I find more deer bedded in there um, than almost anywhere else. At least, at least big bucks. Sure. So. Yeah, that makes sense, man. Um, well, brother, we've been at it for I think. Yeah, we're we're closing in on the two hour mark. So <laughs> I kind of figured it'd go that way, though. Um, we're gonna have to do this again. I really appreciate you uh, coming on, and uh, you got one more buck tag in your pocket for Missouri, right? Yep. I'll, so you can only kill two in Missouri. I'll during rifle season, I'll bow hunt on some bow only properties. And if I don't, if I don't fill one with my rifle tag, then I'll go back to bow hunting late season. Okay. Pretty slick, man. Well, I appreciate you coming on and, uh, we're going to have to do this sometime again here, maybe after you kill buck number two for the year. Man, that'd be awesome. Make sure you edit me and uh, make it sound real good. <laughs> I'm going to do my best, man. I'm going to have to edit out all these internet collapses here. This is going to be ridiculous because our internet's been trash. But uh, well, that being said, I'm really grateful for you giving us your time. And uh, good luck for the rest of the season, man. Thanks, brother. You too. This has been Fueled by the Outdoors. I've been your host, Chris Leppert. And tonight we were joined by Charles Golson. Thanks, guys, for tuning in. Have a good one. See you.